And I really would have liked to do kind of a review of what we covered, but I definitely don't have time for that today. So uh, I would recommend if you, if you want to purchase the book and read it. It's a short book. It's not a, not a difficult read, uh, but it would be good if you want to get an overview. Or, of course, you can listen to the, the whole series online as well. So uh, let's have a word of prayer before we start. Our gracious God, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can come together and learn about you. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you'd be with all of our teachers today, that we would speak the truth, and that you'd be glorified in what we say. We ask you, Lord, to uh, help us understand uh, further today the role of men and women in the church, um, how to teach our children about these things and talk to them about these things. And uh, we pray that as we learn, we would uh, be humble and they would be willing to submit to what your word says. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So we live in, uh, we live in strange times. Don't we? We live in a time where I was reading, um, I'm finishing up Carl Truman's book on the rise and triumph of the modern mind, which is very boring. <laughs> it's complicated. It's, it's pretty complicated, but it's very informative too, so it's worth reading, even if it's kind of hard to get through sometimes. Um, but in it, he points out that the physical body does not inform you of truth anymore in, in the modern mind. He's not saying that that's a true statement, but in the modern mind, our, the physical body does not tell you whether you are a man or a woman anymore. It's really how you feel is what tells you whether you're a man or a woman. Even, and even that statement is not necessarily true in the modern mind in that the binary system of male and female is also being deconstructed, where there isn't just male and female anymore. You know, the, the, I think I recently read that there's 83 different genders or something like that. And this is coming from the party that tells us to trust the science. So there's not a lot of logic, but that's also deconstructed. Logic is no longer a, a thing that should be trusted or, or foisted upon us. Um, I saw a, uh, this is how sad it is, really. I mean, it was kind of humorous in a way, but also very, very sad and troubling. I watched a, a little video of this teenage girl who made bracelets to inform people of what her pronouns were at that time. So she had three different colors. She had one for she, her, another for he, him, and another for they, them. And then at the end of the video, she said she's changed her pronouns three times today. And that was like a badge of honor. That was like a really good thing, okay? So I say all this to point out that that's the, that's the ethos of the day. That's, that's the, the fishbowl that we're, we're living in. Right? That's how people are thinking. That's how our young people are thinking these days. The question, uh, the, the, the chapter that we're going to cover, one of the chapters we're covering today is talking about this stuff with our, our children, right? I have two girls and a boy, and this is the world that they're growing up in, a world where your physical body is not supposed to tell you whether you're a, a male or a female. So we need to talk to our kids about these things and give them good biblical answers, a good understanding of what the Bible says 
about men and women and what does it mean to be a man or a woman. So the question is, if your son comes to you and asks you, what does it mean to be a man? Or your daughter comes to you and asks her, what does it mean to be a woman? What is the answer that you're going to give them? And it needs to go beyond just their physical traits. It's a good question to ask. And I would, I would actually say your son or your daughter is probably not going to ask you that question. We need to go and talk to them about those questions so that they know. Because the world is going to give them answers to those questions. And the answers to those questions are going to be wrong. The answer that we give them needs to include being made in the image of God, uh, growing in Christ-likeness. But it also needs to answer the question very clearly. What does it actually mean to be a man or to be a woman? So we need to bring that into focus. We've been talking about complementarianism or complementarity. uh, And that just means that there are differences between the sexes not just in generalities. There are specific differences. What does it actually mean to be a man as opposed to being a woman, specifically? What does it mean to be a woman, specifically, as opposed to being a man? This is good. This is the way that God has made us. God has created a binary system. That is a controversial statement, believe it or not. God created a binary system where there's men and women. And we need to affirm that, and we need to affirm that it's a good thing, that there are differences between men and women. If we neglect to affirm the differences between the sexes, then we, we neglect to affirm the good that God has created in that system. Now, I remember there was a, a video, it was actually a few years ago, where a uh, secular uh, educator was talking about gender issues and whatever, and and she just said kind of, it wasn't a major point, it was just kind of off the, you know, there's a side note basically, that men are generally stronger than women. And there were people who stood up and started calling her a Nazi and yelling at her and then left in a rage. So when we, when we in this room, when we say, yes, there are men and women, there's differences between us, that no one's calling me a Nazi right now. I don't think I'm upsetting anybody. But that's a controversial statement. It's hard to believe, but it's a controversial statement that men, are, men and women are different. So as we, as we talk about this with our, our children, uh, there's five things that I'm going to go through today. That, and he, the author puts it in the A, B, C, D, E format, but then he doesn't go in that order, so it's not super helpful. But anyway... It's, it, it is helpful, you can remember. A for appearance, B is body, C is character, D is demeanor, and then E is your eager posture. So we'll look at these as they appear in Scripture instead of in alphabetical order. And there's overlap here. I'm going to say some things that, I've, that we've said in previous studies, but hopefully this will kind of tie things together as we, as we finish up today. So if you want to open uh, your Bible to Genesis 2... Genesis 2, verse 18. This is after God has created Adam. And he sees that, you know, Adam is good, but he sees that he's incomplete. 
So Genesis 2.18 says, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So already there's a difference we see. Adam was created to lead. Right? He was created to name the animals. He's, he's the one who's commanded not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he was the one who was held responsible when Eve and when Adam and Eve sinned. Even though Eve was the one who was deceived, Adam is the one who's held responsible for the sin. Eve, on the other hand, was created because it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. God did not create another being that was the same as Adam. Because Adam needed someone who was different than him. He needed someone who would be a helper. So Eve was created to be his helper. That does not mean that she's created to be inferior. It just means that she serves a different purpose. And if you're, if you, in your mind, if you think someone's supposed to be a helper, therefore they're inferior, consider that Yahweh in the Old Testament is often, frequently called the helper of Israel. So God himself takes that title upon him so that cannot mean that implicitly being a helper is an inferior thing because God is our help, helper and the helper of Israel. <clears throat> this is the posture that Eve, that Eve is given, that she is supposed to be eager to help. And posture here is used deliberately. It's, it's used to mean this is your general inclination. This is what you ought to be. Women are designed to be helpers, and that's the role that God has given them. Thus, they should be in that posture, generally speaking. Now, this doesn't mean that they can only help and that they could, they could never lead in some way. This also does not mean that a man can't help. But it does mean that a, a wife should be ready to be led by her husband. A wife should be ready to come alongside her husband and help him. The bigger point to be made it really has to do with what the men are supposed to be doing. When men fail to lead, so I'm talking to all the men right here, men, when you fail to lead your family, the woman is going to be tempted to take that position. And frequently it seems when men take on roles of leadership that they ought not to, it's because the man is failing, particularly in the household. Any questions? Okay, so we'll move on to uh, B, which is for body. So if you want to turn to Leviticus 18.22, you may. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So we already already mentioned that uh, what the world claims is that orientation is more important than biological sex. In fact, biological sex really doesn't have anything to say about whether you're a woman or a man anymore. They also will claim that gender is a social construct and that what we feel is more important and really trumps physical reality. And, you know, it's, it's very easy when, I, when we're talking about this girl who makes these bracelets, right? Or these people who get really upset that... Uh, someone points out objective reality that men generally are taller and stronger than women, right? It's very easy to kind of laugh, to kind of chuckle at those things because it is just, it's a denial of objective reality. Like, if you look at 100 men and you look at 100 women, 
Most of the men are going to be taller, and most of them are probably going to be physically stronger as well. So it's very easy to kind of laugh at these ideas, but we need to actually deal with these ideas and not just laugh them off, right? We need to have an answer for these things. Even if the people who we're answering will not think in a logical manner, we still need to have biblical answers for these things, right? You know, as I've, as I've thought about this and as I'm reading, you know, Carl Truman's book, you know, the question has come up in my mind. How do you even talk to someone about these issues when they will not, uh, when they will not acknowledge objective reality? How do you even try to reach that person, right? It does, it does seem like an impossible task, but nevertheless... We have to have biblical answers, and we need to teach those answers to our children, which means having awkward conversations like we're going to have right now. <laughs> so the Bible denies that there are more than two genders. It denies that uh, gender is a social construct. It denies that orientation is more important than biological sex. Biological sex is not, malle- not malleable. It's something that God has given to us for our good. Our gender, our biological sex, that you are a man or you are a woman, is a blessing from God. God has made you like that for a reason, and it needs to be embraced. This is why the male body is not designed to fit with another male body. This is why Adam was given Eve. Uh, Paul speaks in these terms in Romans 1, verses 26 through 27. He says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Paul's argument hinges on the fact that God made men and women to be complementary to each other in ways that two men cannot, in ways that two women cannot. Putting the Bible aside, which sounds really weird to say, even natural revelation, just the way things are, tells us the physical act of sex is designed to be between two people of the opposite sex, not two people of the same sex. Two men or two women cannot function in the same way that a man and woman do. It does not take supernatural revelation to figure this out, right? The sexual union was created to be the moment in which two become one. And the question is why? Why is it that? And that's because God created a unique male and female sexual union with procreative ability. The ability to fulfill the reason they were created in the first place, right? The creation mandate in Genesis 1. Adam and Eve were told to replenish, to multiply to fill and to subdue the earth. And that cannot be done with two men or two women. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 is also a strongly, very strongly countercultural passage. It says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. As we teach our children they need to understand why we've come to the conclusions that we've come to. 
Don't just teach them that sex is between a man and a woman in marriage. Teach them why. When I was in college, I had a friend ask me this very question. He said, why, why is it that saying a vow in front of some people makes sex okay? But if you don't say that vow, it doesn't, it's not okay. And at the time, I didn't really have a great answer other than because God said so. Which really is the best, I mean, that is what it comes down to, right? If God said that something is good and something is evil, that's, that should be good enough for us. We shouldn't need anything other than, well, God said so, so I'm going to trust that. A better answer might be this. The body is not separate from God's intention for us as men and as women. We're not free to use it in any way that we please. Or we're not free to deny it the way that God has created us. God had created men and women to become one flesh within the context of marriage in order to fulfill the divine mandate of Genesis 1, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to exercise dominion over creation. That would be a better answer to give. That would be a good answer to give to our children when we talk about this in those awkward conversations we love having. Any questions about that? That Wonderful. That was all under body? That was all under body, yeah. So we'll move on to appearance. 1 Corinthians 11.6 says, For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. So Titu taught uh, on this whole passage out of 1 Corinthians 11 about head coverings. And I'm not going to really go over that again. But Paul's basic argument in 1 Corinthians 11 is that men should look like men and women should look like women. And although some of his arguments are related to the culture of that day, the basic premise remains the same. Men should look like men, women should look like women within that cultural context. Women should express express themselves in feminine ways and men should express themselves in masculine ways. Now, this, this does not mean that we just uphold stereotypes or we take a one-dimensional look at men and women, which would be like, well, men should drive trucks and eat bacon and be into sports. I mean, all those things are true. <laughs> Can you give me the passage for that? <laughs> well, I just did. <laughs> but we, we don't want to just stereotype things, right? Uh, we don't want to stereotype women like, well, all women bake cakes and they all like to wear pink and, and things like that. At the same time, stereotypes do come from somewhere, don't they? They're stereotyped for a reason. So they can, in some sense, they can be informative, but maybe they shouldn't be formative. And this is true whether you agree with what I'm saying prior to this or not. This is just reality that we live in, right? Um, And ironically, transgenderism actually proves this point. Transgenderism, even though it tries to deny the objective reality of men and women, it unwittingly proves the point that there are men and women. Because what does a trans woman look like? It's a man who's trying to look like a woman, right? And a trans man is a woman who's trying to look like a woman, or a man, correct? Did I say that right? (laughs) You get the point though, right? A man who believes that they are actually a woman 
wears makeup, might wear a dress, might wear jewelry, might have surgery to make themselves actually look like someone of the opposite sex, even though there's not supposed to be only two genders. It gets very confusing after a while when you think about these things. So these stereotypes do, they do come from somewhere, and they all contain a grain of truth, right? There are differences between men and women. Most girls, most little girls, are going to be drawn toward playing with dolls. Most little boys are probably going to be drawn towards playing with trucks. And little girls like pink, little boys like blue. This has actually been studied by secular psychologists. Without any kind of influence, girls are drawn to those things and boys are drawn to the opposite. It's very interesting. Now, we ought to be thoughtful about how we approach this issue uh, as some of it is culturally informed or influenced. For example, a man who wears lipstick, does his nails, uh, and goes out in a cocktail dress is expressing feminine traits, right? Would we all agree with that? Those are feminine things, doing your nails, wearing a dress. That seems pretty clear to me. However, can a man enjoy baking? Yes, a man can enjoy baking. Can a man enjoy shopping? No, they can't. (laughs) I can't, unless it's like guitars. I enjoy that. But yes, so, so a man could enjoy, possibly, maybe, Enjoy shopping. Or trucks. Or, tr- or trucks, yes. Good example. Uh, a man could possibly, although this does seem impossible to me, enjoy musical theater. I can't, but some men could. So none of those are really problematic in and of themselves. However, if a man is expressing himself overly in feminine ways, like doing their nails, and although I did my nails because I was a classical guitarist, not because I'm expressing femininity. But when a man expresses himself overly in these ways, it does, it should be a cause for concern, right? God has made a man to be a man. Uh, And so he ought to be a leader. He ought to be a teacher. He ought to uh, provide for his family, protect his family. Those are good things. If a man is abrogating his duty to his wife in those ways, that's definitely a way or an issue that needs to be dealt with. So the Bible's teaching on this is pretty clear, I think, even though when we get into the details of these things, it, it can be a little bit murky at times. And, you know, especially as elders, we need to be thoughtful about these issues and prayerful. Generally speaking, A man should express himself in masculine ways. A woman should appear and express themselves in feminine ways. And in our day, I think we do need to be careful about this. If we have someone here, or we come across someone in our daily life who is struggling with gender dysphoria, for lack of a better term, or confusion over whether they're a male or female, we should instruct them. We should try to instruct them as best we can. We should not... Try to shame them, but talk to them, teach them what the scriptures say. And we need to trust that God is able to change these people too, right? These are people who are created in the image of God, who are in bondage to sin, who are totally and utterly confused about what is up and what is down, what's left and right, what is true and what's not true. 
And instead of dismissing them and laughing at them and calling them crazy, which a lot of, a lot of us do, we need to have a greater measure of compassion on them and really trust that the gospel can reach these people because it can. Now, the next is our demeanor. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8, it says, But we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you became dear to us. And then skipping down to verses 11 and 12, it says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So if you notice there, this is Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he uses both motherly and fatherly language in this passage. In 7 and 8, he talks about uh, he, he was, as a mother, gentle and tender and affectionate. And then he speaks as a father, exhorting, encouraging, and leading. And for Paul, those characteristics correspond more with one gender than with the other. Now, this isn't to say that a mother could not be encouraging or that these virtues are only for men or only for women. However, there is, I think as we've seen, a general pattern that is revealed in Scripture. Women tend to be more on the gentle side than men. Would we agree with that? Men tend to be more aggressive. Not necessarily aggressive in a a negative sense, but we tend to be more forward and aggressive. It can be in a negative sense, but... Uh, Men tend to be more hortatory, which just means more exhorting than women. Paul, however, he does describe himself as being a uh, a nursing mother, right? Uh, But ultimately, he thinks of men as having a demeanor that's more toward leading and exhorting, and women as more having a, a a gentle spirit. And then finally, uh, I think finally, character is the next, uh, the next thing that we need to talk to our children about, character. In 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7, Peter writes, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife, as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So women are exhorted to be respectful, to be pure, to be gentle, to be more concerned with the beauty of the inward woman and not so much with the outward. Men are exhorted to show honor, to be understanding, and to exercise caring leadership. So it seems like what Paul is saying here or Peter, sorry, saying here is there's 
there's two crowning characteristics. These are not the only characteristics, but there's two crowning characteristics. For a woman, the true, or the, the crowning characteristic is true beauty on the inside. And for a man, it's strength. It's caring leadership and strength. Now, of course, these aren't, like I said, the only characteristics, but it's like the crown that you wear on your head. You may have other, other garb on, but these are the, the crowning characteristics. And Paul gives similar instruction to women in 1 Timothy 9, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10. It says, women adorn, women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So it seems like the message from both Peter and Paul is the same, that while it's not sinful to appear beautiful for a woman, the inner beauty is far more important than the outside beauty. And for men, the message is simple. Be a leader. Don't be domineering. Be a caring and thoughtful leader. Honor the wife. Be understanding toward her. Listen to your wife because she has wisdom that you don't even think of. Men are created to be strong, and the Bible usually associates strength with men. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And then in 1 Kings 2, 2, David is on his deathbed. He's giving instructions to his son Solomon. Before he dies, he says, be strong and show yourself a man. And then what's interesting is that right after that, he tells him, obey God, follow his commands, walk in his ways. So there is an element of strength with men, but your strength is not merely a physical strength, which I know I'm the model of physical strength in this room. Uh, the opposite of that, actually. But the strength is in leading your your family, your people, in godliness. So what exactly do we learn from the emphasis on you know, the inner beauty of, of women and, and the strength of men? It's, women are generally wired for beauty, right? Men, like beauty, the beauty of our appearance is like the last thing that we think about, whereas women tend to spend more time on their, their physical beauty. I don't think that's controversial. Am I, am I right in that? Women, women you know, the, the joke that I heard once was, uh, no, never mind, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I'm just going to avoid that. Uh, but scripture, scripture recognizes this and also warns about this, that women should not be too concerned with outward beauty and that men should not be domineering in their leadership, Right? So there's this acknowledgement. Men are wired for strength. Women are wired for, for beauty. Generally, men are, are stronger than women. We're more interested in feats of strength and more inclined toward risky behavior even, right? Um, and a, a Christian man should embrace this and lead his family with, with courage toward Christ-likeness. A woman should embrace her, uh, her desire for beauty, but direct that toward her inner beauty, not merely outward beauty. So what do we tell our children when they ask us? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? 
Be the kind of man that God wants you to be. Be strong. Exercise caring leadership. Be courageous. Be godly. For a woman, be gentle. Be beautiful on the inside. Be a helper. And for everyone, be Christ-like. Learn who Jesus is and act like him. Follow him first of all. The culture is going to continue to hammer us day after day with its empty and deceitful philosophies, with its psychology that denies objective reality. And Christian, you will be called a bigot. You will be called a homophobe if you speak about these things. You'll be called a transphobe and any other insult that they can throw at you because they want to force you to give up what the scriptures teach us about being men and being women. They have a satanic agenda, and one of the strongest weapons they have is fear, right? Nobody in our culture wants to be called a racist. That's like the worst thing that you can be called. And if you teach these things, you will be called a racist, almost guaranteed. But we need to stand strong, we need to stand tall, and this has to begin with you, men, in your family, leading your kids, leading your, your, your wife and your children, teaching them what it means to be a biblical man, teaching them what it means to be a biblical woman. We have to live it out before them, and we have to teach them what the scriptures teach so that they don't buy into the empty deceit that the world has for them and that the world will always be teaching them. Any, any questions before I move on? Yes, Adam. What was E? E was an eager posture. Any other questions? Uh, we're confused about they and them. I'll talk to you afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> So you're confused too. <laughs> none, none of it makes sense. <laughs> Don't expect it to be a logical answer. Yeah. Uh, so okay. So we're going to move on to the the last chapter. And uh, I, I think the first thing we need to assure ourselves of is that the battle is going to be won. Right. The uh, rather the war will be won. And today we are fighting one battle among many battles that are being fought in the war. If we're going to win people over to our side, if we're going to win people for Christ, we need to be patient. We need to be warm in the way we speak about these things. We need to be winsome. And more than anything, we need to be grounded in Scripture. We need to be in tune with our culture. We need to understand what the culture is saying, where the culture is going. I think Carl Truman's book is actually very informative. I know it's difficult, but it's very informative, and I'd recommend it. And definitely come to the, the, the uh, lecture series that he'll be attending at, uh, or leading at WRS. We need to be in tune with our culture without yielding to it and without buying into it. As an example, there was a pastor years ago who described his views on homosexuality as this, theologically conservative and socially progressive. Okay. Theologically conservative but socially progressive. Now, I see a lot of confused looks on your face, and that's encouraging because it doesn't make sense. 
So his hold on orthodoxy was very, very thin at best. And a few years later, he announced that he saw nothing wrong with same-sex relationships. Surprise! Not much of a surprise, really. However, in, in an age of profound confusion over maleness and femaleness, we are called to reaffirm how God has made us. We should not capitulate to social progressivism. We believe in men, we believe in women, we believe in maleness and femaleness. Men ought to follow Christ as men, and women ought to follow Christ as women. And just to be clear, I know I already talked about this in a previous lesson, there's no advantage to being a man or to being a woman when it comes to being justified in Christ. There's no advantage to being young or old, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. Everyone is justified the same way by by faith in Christ. But we were justified as men. We were justified as women. And we shouldn't despise or misconstrue the God-given differences between men and women. Now, just a word of caution as we think about this. We're complementarians. And it may be tempting to just kind of fall back on the rules, the so-called rules of complementarianism. That is that men lead in the home and in the church and women are submissive. And then we fail to look at the topic at a deeper level. Imagine two, you've got two basketballs. Okay, they, they look the same. They're shaped the same. They feel the same. They do all the same things. And yet... God has decreed that this basketball is for indoor use and this one is for outdoor use. Okay? That's kind of a superficial understanding of what it means to be a complementarian. It, it's an attempt to agree with Scripture, and it's a good attempt, but it's an incomplete attempt. We need to have a more robust understanding of what it means to be a complementarian. It's more than just this basketball is for indoor use and this one is for outdoor use. When someone takes that kind of view, over time, it begins, it begins to lack coherence. It begins to not be very convincing because they look the same, they feel the same, they do all the same things. There's really no difference between the two. It's just this one's for this and this one's for that. It's not a very compelling argument. But if we understand this topic at a deeper level, and I hope we do already, we could change the analogy to a basketball and a football. My apologies to the the people who are not into sports, but that's what I've got. If we attempt to use a football as a basketball, it immediately becomes apparent that this is not going to work. It can kind of work, sort of, but it's very awkward, and it produces unintended consequences for the game, right? Even if the the rules of the game are being played different, it's because the ball that you're using has forced it to be different, right? This, This causes problems. So as we attempt to maintain or recover biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, we need to recognize the difference between the sexes and be comfortable with that, that these are not bad things. There are differences between men and women, And it's the way that God has created it. Our author states this well. Sexual difference is not simply a marker of who may hold the office of elder, 
It is an indication of the sort of image bearer God wants us to be in all of life. Men will bear the image of Christ in this way, and women will bear the image of Christ in this way. And that's the way that God has made it. Sexual differences are real, and they can be identified. And we ought to acknowledge and understand how that informs the way God wants us to bear the image that he's given to us. Even nature teaches that there's differences. Our physical structure is different. Our physical strengths are different, as I've said too many times already. Our rights and duties are different as men and women. Our responsibilities in and outside of marriage are different. Our responsibilities at home and in the workplace are different. We have different needs. We have different capacities. We have different ways that we think and feel and emote and relate. There are differences in the way we perceive things, in the way we perceive spirituality, in the way we perceive morality. There's differences in occupations. 99% of bricklayers are men. Not a lot of women do that job. There's differences in duties at church. And all of this is good. All of this is the way that God has made us. God deemed that the way he made Adam and Eve in the garden was very good. And it's also reflected in the way things changed after the fall. Eve sinned as a wife and a helper, and the curse she received for her sin is related to her role as a helper and as a bearer of children. Adam sinned as a husband and a cultivator of the earth, and so the curse laid on him was related to his work. Men and women differ in their temptations and their defects. Marriage is not just a complementary arrangement. It is a corrective one as well. Another reason why marriage is between a man and a woman. They can't be interchanged. You can't have two men and fulfill the creation mandate. They're also not independent of each other. Marriage is good because God made it to be good. When a man exercises godly authority at home, he's not just filling a role that anybody could fulfill. He is living out what it means to be a man. When a woman supports her husband, she is living out what it means to be a woman created in the image of God. I have to jump to my conclusion now. That's okay. So there are, I think there are... uh, There's room for disagreement in the details, right? But I think we have to start from the same place, that men were created a certain way to fulfill certain roles, and women were created in certain ways to fulfill certain roles. And let's remember what Psalm 19, 7 through 8 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Complementarianism should not be reduced merely to men lead and women submit. That's a shallow view. And yet, that is kind of a meaningful expression of what it means to be a man and a woman. It does need to go deeper than that. The way God made us is good. It was there from the beginning. It, we observed it in, uh, in, the cre- in creation. We observed it with the way the nation Israel functioned. It was there in the Gospels, which we saw. It was there in the early church, and it's going to be there in glory as well. Being a man is a gift. Being a woman is a gift. And let's not sneer at the way that God has ordered things. 
Let's not capitulate to the culture that hates our creator and our savior. And let's not pretend that we're wiser than God in these things. Rather, let's humble ourselves and submit to what the Lord has done, the way that he has made us, men and women. Let's embrace that and follow Christ as men and women. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we thank you that you've made us the way that we are. We thank you that you are indeed wiser than us. You are good to us, and we pray, Lord, that we would submit to your word, uh, that we would live out our lives as men following Christ, as women following Christ, and that we would embrace the role uh, that you've given to each of us. We pray, Lord, for the rest of our day that you would bless the word preached and our, our gatherings. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.